This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we're talking about traditional ecological knowledge and its relationship with Western science. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. You can't continue to dismiss indigenous belief systems as subjective. You know, that science is just as real as any other form of science, more rounded and comprehensive and directly tied to identity in everyday life. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Daisy Purdy. Daisy is a lecturer of Applied Indigenous Studies and Ethnic Studies at Northern Arizona University, a PhD student in political science, and is the founder and president of Inclusive Community Consulting, a group that educates and advocates for equity in organizations. Here with Daisy, we talk about traditional ecological knowledge and Western science and how both forms of knowing interact with public policy. We begin our interview with Daisy introducing traditional ecological knowledge. You know, I get that question a lot, as I'm sure a lot of people do, and it's an interesting question to attempt to answer because it's kind of like saying, what is a way of life, you know, a way of being in this world, in this planet, and acknowledging spaces around you? Um, I think some of the important defining components of traditional ecological knowledge are recognizing that it's a long-held set of knowledge and beliefs and awarenesses that are passed from one generation to the next. I think that's one of the ways that it really stands out. But ultimately, it's just a way of, of understanding the world around you. Your place in that world is interconnected to it and not seeing yourself as sort of as a human being hierarchically set apart from um, all of the living beings and um, you know everything that's around you, effectively. A worldview is a component of it. I think it's important to recognize sometimes when we think of things as worldviews or perspectives or, you know, moral philosophies or things along those lines, they seem dismissible as subjective. And unfortunately, the court system a lot of the times has ruled against native belief systems because they're seen as subjective versus objective Western science. Um, and ultimately, those beliefs and awarenesses and views are informed by, just like Western science, making observations, making connections between those observations, seeing patterns, um, seeing how the things interconnect. I think that Probably Robin Kimmerer put it best when she said, um, when she was training to be a Western scientist and, and coming from a, a traditional background, and she had said, you know, the difference but for me is when I look at a plant, traditionally I'm taught to ask the question, who are you? And Western science would teach me to ask the question, what are you? And Western science very much so categorizes things as apart from each other, and traditional ecological knowledge is looking at the interconnectedness between things, not as they exist just within an ecosystem, but as they exist inherently with worth of their own and with that worth connecting into the identities of everything around them, including human beings. And I guess a, a way of understanding TEK is this notion of the earth doesn't belong to us as something to be categorized and compartmentalized. We belong to the earth and ultimately we're dependent on it. So everything in the earth has a story to tell. And I think that TEK asks us to listen and understand that story instead of trying to explain it. 
One example that I like to share just because I'm a big policy buff because I recognize that power and influence are tied into policy and a lot of times certain voices are amplified and other voices are muffled when it comes to who's at the forefront of making decisions about things like land management, land designations, um, how we as a mainstream society uh, consume or observe public spaces around us. And uh, a lot of the voices that have been left out in that discussion are the first peoples that, that were in these places, people indigenous to these places, and people that have a longer standing knowledge of these lands um, and the beings on these lands than anybody that's come since could have had. I mean, you're talking about thousands-year-old longitudinal study, effectively, that's been passed down from generation to generation when you're talking about traditional ecological knowledge. And I bring up policy and the fact that a lot of times policy decisions are made that effectively influence the outcomes of where we're deciding on leases for extractive industries, um, you know, oil, gas, uranium. And a lot of times those decisions are made with environmental studies that are based in Western science and that categorization um, and looking at the impact specifically in, on the environment without necessarily taking into account holistic well-being. Even when we talk about public health, it's very much so geared towards medical and physical components of public health. When you're talking about tradition and identity and connection to place, it's important to recognize the holistic connection of place, whereby when you're making decisions about public lands and you're using Western science, is it looking at the psychological, emotional, spiritual impact of people that are connected to that place? Can you assess that, something like that, with Western science by saying this is the impact that it's going to have on this quote-unquote environment and these are the health impacts, potential health impacts and implications for populations living in this area? When you're measuring those things, questioning toxicity levels and so forth, we're not questioning the toxicity levels of people being able to access the plants that they need for ceremonial use, the spaces that they need because they're connected directly to their identity and their well-being. And so I think that although I cringe a little bit when it comes to the notion of, of TEK becoming a buzz term or traditional ecological knowledge being brought in to that conversation in the way it has, I also think that if we can shift our understanding as a Western mainstream society to recognize that health and well-being isn't something that's just limited to physical wellness, medical ailments, and how that ties into how we're treating the world around us. And I think that awareness would also enhance policy outcomes in the regard that you can't continue to dismiss indigenous belief systems as subjective. You know, that science is just as real as any other form of science. I would argue that it's comprehensive and holistic in ways that Western science might not consider, not that it doesn't have the ability to, but just that that model and approach tends to be a little bit more systematic and, and linear versus more rounded and comprehensive and directly tied to identity in everyday life. And intergenerational, I think that's another thing that I'd like to highlight when you're talking about traditional ecological knowledge. You're talking about, you know, grandmas talking to grandkids um, and passing on that that knowledge. Can you explain a little bit more to me about some of the differences between um, how traditional knowledge and Western science kind of approach understanding the world? 
I guess the easiest way to explain it is it de-emphasizes separation, like the idea behind at least my understanding. I'm a social scientist. I should throw that out as well. My understanding of of Western science is um, the removal of bias is a huge thing that exists in there where the scientist has to remove themselves from the subject and um, take an objective look at what it is that they're studying. With traditional ecological knowledge, that would be not only dishonoring and um, not acknowledging the agency of what it is that you're looking at, but also divorcing yourself from it and being blinded to the fact that there's a relationship that exists there. And I say this in a way that I don't want to create a false binary that Western science exists in its own sphere over in one direction, and then traditional ecological knowledge exists in another sphere in another direction, and those somehow can't inform or connect or relate or even don't have ultimately some of the same information to share. I think that's one of the biggest problems that we're seeing when we start to see traditional ecological knowledge enter the conversation of things like public lands management on the Colorado Plateau, or how do we enforce or determine how lands um, should be designated, or even how do we be good citizens and interact with these spaces around us. It is a false binary, meaning that they don't exist entirely apart in a way that they can't communicate with each other. There's a ton of overlapping components of it. One of the stories that I like to share, it's not my story to share because it's not from my cultural identity, but it's one that's been published, I think that it's important to bring awareness to, is the Katmuk Declaration in the Northern Rockies up in British Columbia. The Tunaha Nation came out and shared some traditional knowledge that initially was not supposed to be shared publicly, but there was a decision that was being made as to whether or not a ski resort should be developed on a place that is a place of significance for the Tunaha Nation as well as uh, some other First Nations groups in that area. And it creates a lot of tension when we start to talk about these things because there's economic factors that go into it, right, especially in areas that might not have as much economic infrastructure, as much opportunities. And so, um, and then development companies coming in and talking about boosts to economy. A lot of times it creates divisions. But with the Gatmuk Declaration and the Tunaha Nation, they decided to come out and share some knowledge that had been passed down for generations about why this place was so significant. And they thought that that would help sway the outcome and decision-making as to whether or not it should be developed. They sent a Western science team in as well to determine environmental impacts of developing in that area. Um, And what the Tunaha Nation had shared was that this is a place um, where grizzly spirit goes, and it's a place that it can't be developed um, because it's such a significant place for grizzly and nowhere else can the same relationship happen in that way and I'm probably not explaining it the way it should be again I want to acknowledge fully that it's not a part of my traditional belief system I'm not from that area which leads me to say that traditional ecological knowledge is directly tied to place I had mentioned context before it's a very place specific set of knowledge awarenesses um, science and identity tied into that place so You can't just take it out or say, well, TEK, according to this group, is this, so that must be what it is. It's place-specific, place-based, and passed down from generation one generation to the next. So in this particular example that I'm sharing with the Tunaha Nation and the Gatmuk Declaration, they had shared this knowledge with the general public, um, got permission in inappropriate ways to do that. And meanwhile, Western Science Team was sent in to do an assessment, and they came away saying, 
you know, we've gone through this mountain range and this is where the grizzly bear as a keystone species passes through. And if you develop here, it's going to directly impact not only the grizzly bear, but all of the ripple effect of science when when grizzly grizzly bears are disturbed. And so effectively, you have two different ways of looking at the same exact thing. For the Tunaha, to explain that, it's explained in a way that ties into their identity, their connection to that place, their religion, right? And the significance of it is inherently more weighty in that regard. But unfortunately, it's also more dismissible as seen from a Western perspective, because it's like, well, we, where's your grizzly spirit? You know, show it to us. We want to see it so we can measure it um, and we can study it. And as people know, especially people of faith know that you can't always measure certain things. So for Western science to say that in a different way, that's all of a sudden aha moment for mainstream society, like, oh, wait a minute, there will be an effect if we develop here because grizzly bear and we'll listen to that message. One of my biggest concerns is that we, we privilege the Western science message over indigenous knowledge holders and what they're sharing. Another concern that I have when we start talking about traditional ecological knowledge, um, how that relates to Western science and how it might be implemented in land management decisions and just how we are as human beings in this world, right, is that it's oftentimes seen as a supplement to enhance Western science. And I think that's problematic it creates sort of this symbolic nature of like, okay, here's the science, and then let's see what the Native people have to say about it to sort of supplement that. Did we miss anything? So I'd really like to challenge people to upset that hierarchy and recognize that Indigenous knowledge, and specifically traditional ecological knowledge, to Indigenous knowledge as it relates to the environment, ecological systems, is not there as a, as a supplement. It's not there as something that's an afterthought to Western science. Um, it's something that needs to be respected as an ongoing study and awareness of the world that we live in. And it's also something that needs to be respected as accessible to the people who hold that knowledge and not something that outsiders can have exclusive access to. One of the courses that I teach with Wild Rockies Field Institute for the University of Montana has a strong emphasis of traditional ecological knowledge. I'm supposed to quote unquote teach traditional ecological knowledge, but we understand within Wild Rockies as well as within the classroom that my place is not to make students learn traditional ecological knowledge. It's to make students aware that it exists because most of my my students are non-native. And even if they were native, they might not be native to all of the different places that we're going through, nor am I, right, indigenous to the areas that we're going through. My maternal ties are to one specific area in the country. And so I more see myself in a role of sharing the fact that that this exists, that it's something to be respected, um, that there are multiple different lenses through which you can see the world, and to honor, acknowledge, recognize, and ultimately trust the people that are from these places to know more about these places that anybody else ever could um, is inherent to recognizing traditional ecological knowledge and recognizing the world that we live in. I guess that's a really, really roundabout way of saying that traditional ecological knowledge and Western science are not mutually exclusive and that they can work together in appropriate ways. Ultimately, the decision makers and what that should look like are, should be the knowledge holders themselves in a way that's not extractive or exploitative, um, in a way that's reciprocal and mutually beneficial. 
And ultimately, I feel like it's something that we should be talking about more because so often it's dismissed as myth and legend versus, you know, fact and truth. Um, And there are truths to traditional ecological knowledge and there are truths to Western science. And we need to not dismiss one or the other, but recognize that they both have their places and that we don't have to choose between them or compartmentalize them in a way that that we're only validating or focusing on one or the other. How do you think that would look in practice? Like how do, and has that been effectively implemented where these two different components are held as equal and used in equal ways? You know, I don't consider myself the source in all things reasonable with TEK, um, but I think that some of the models that we really need to be looking towards and seeing how they work are things like decisions being made associated with Bears Ears um, and the intertribal coalitions and Utah Dene Bikea that have formed around that decision-making process and come together. Because it's also important to recognize that Native America is not some unified, united front of a belief system, right? So you have five different tribes who have five different belief systems, culture, knowledge, understanding of place that are working together to find that common ground and identify. We all recognize that these places need to be respected in certain ways. What does that look like? How can we do that? How can we work together? And beyond that, how can we work with Western science and folks who might not be privy to the same knowledge that we are, not have the same understanding that's been passed down from generation to generation? And influence their understanding in a way that's appropriate of how we we should work, you know, towards bears ears and recognizing these spaces in a a respectful and responsible way. How do we work with the lawyers, right, to bring that into the court system? How do you translate that to policy? And I think a lot of the decisions and the conversations and the dialogue that's been happening around bears ears, um, specifically on the Colorado Plateau, is a great example of how Folks can work together to find that common ground in appropriate ways and a great example of how there are so many complexities to it. And it's not an easy undertaking. Right. I think one of the things at the forefront should be that notion of self-determination, moving away from a paternalistic sort of patronizing sovereignty where you have folks saying, these lands are held in trust for you and this is how it should be managed. You know, sovereignty in the United States with trust lands is similar to that. And so I intentionally use this term self-determination because it puts the power of decision-making and the acknowledgement of intellect and ability and competence and capability into the hands of the people themselves, indigenous people themselves, to make those decisions. And it's just really exciting, but really complicated and really hard to see how those conversations have taken place, to see how those coalitions have formed, to see how that's influenced policy, to see the tensions that it creates at the federal administrative level with the current regime that's in place, but that those conversations are happening. And it's not an easy sort of, this is how you do it, here you go. And I just want to give a shout out and acknowledgement to the folks that are in the trenches and, and having those conversations, and especially recognize the weight of the risk that Native people hold. You know, a lot of times, We hear outdoors enthusiasts, myself included, talking about places as being, you know, climbers specifically. A lot of times we'll talk about like, well, climbing is my religion and this is sacred to me. But there isn't the history there of genocide and lost lives to protect these places. There isn't this history of heritage that's directly connected to it. And 
we sometimes forget when we're talking about these places that the ancestors are still there that have passed, the ancestors of indigenous populations um, whose homelands they're on. These aren't vacant landscapes, right? So there's a complexity to the religion and spirituality tied into that, that the recreation community who does not have indigenous ties, um, ancestral homelands in these places, could never completely understand. Can they value these places? Absolutely. Can they see these places as significance and recognize that they are in fact significant? Absolutely. Should they be making any kind of argument on a, this place is my church, it's spiritual to me ground? No, that's incredibly disrespectful um, to the folks whose lives, identities, awareness, belief systems, ancestors, blood, tears are tied into these spaces. So again, that's a really ambiguous way of answering a very specific question. But when you start to talk about models and collaborations and working together, I really feel like we should look towards coalitions forming like bears ears. We should look towards not sort of a a Western savior jumping in to, to solve these problems, but the knowledge that already exists within the communities that are from these places to to answer these bigger, broader questions. And ultimately, we should be really patient. Um, a lot of times, these things take time. And in Western society, we tend to, you know, go, go, go. We need an answer tomorrow morning. We've got this deadline. Um, but realistically, you're talking about intergenerational conversations that need to take place. You're talking about multiple different folks within the respective indigenous communities that have different held beliefs associated with it. As I said before, there isn't one united front. And so I think that to answer your question, that's a model to go by. We're also seeing sort of shift in understanding of how we conceptualize conservation and the green movement. It's been largely white male led. um, And we're starting to see a, a change and a shift in that, where we acknowledge that there are multiple different perspectives and ways that this work can be done and redoing the same thing over and over is not going to invigorate that dialogue, that conversation. It's not going to move it forward in a way that it needs to. Um, I oftentimes challenge folks when we're talking about collaborations between Western science and indigenous knowledge holders. I challenge folks to think about how they verbalize their understanding of space. Oftentimes it comes from a place of entitlement and we talk about quote unquote our public lands and that's part of the story but also part of the story is the people that have been displaced for these public lands to have these political boundaries drawn around them. The ancestors as I said who are still in these spaces and the the recognition and respect that they deserve and beyond that, too, you know, just looking at when you start to say RRR and we're not acknowledging Aboriginal title and the first people that are here, it's problematic, especially when they don't have voice at the table and how those decisions are being made. I know that the Wilderness Society is in the process of developing a Native Lands Initiative, um, which puts a lot of visibility as well as voice to the history of conservation, recognizing some of that historic trauma um, that's taken place, recognizing some of the exclusion that's taken place, and being focused on healing and moving that dialogue forward in a way that's respectful and inclusive of Indigenous voices. So that's one model that we can see on the horizon. But even within respective Native communities, it's not it's not something new that's happening, right? You're talking about traditional dry farming, that every season you have folks living in this way. You're talking about the longest continuous continuously inhabited settlement in North America out in Old Arrivi and Hopi, right? 
I mean, people are still living in structures that were built how long ago? And I say this not in a primitive, looking back, sort of stereotypic idealism of identity. I say this in a, in a way that it's like these are examples of how traditional ecological knowledge exists here and now in our awareness, how it has been working, continues to work, and isn't something that's kind of buzzy and um, fun to talk about, but it's a way of everyday life in that regard. What have you seen as some of the barriers of incorporating traditional ecological knowledge into management and policy? When you're structuring land designations and you're trying to decide, like BLM, for example, has the option to do what is a a culturally sensitive area, right? You can designate it in a certain way. So when you're looking at areas that leases should be allowed or leases shouldn't be allowed or access to the general public should be allowed and shouldn't be allowed, a lot of the conversations that take place around that related to traditional ecological knowledge are what areas does it not make sense to have people there unless they're going for a specific purpose, like ceremony, um, or there's a reason that they need to be there, that they have permission from their respective communities in order to be there. So with things like bears ears, how do we protect certain places in certain ways to make sure that there isn't you know, what's commonly defined symbolically as, quote unquote, artifacts aren't disrupted. But a component of that conversation is also recognizing these spaces themselves as having cultural significance, as being the quote unquote artifacts, right? Um, not necessarily just the projectile points, right? And, and, and pottery shards and so forth, but the place itself being able to have a designation and an awareness and acknowledgement that it's a place of significance. And so I know that that's been a a large part of the conversation in deciding what it looks like to set this, this space apart and how do five different tribes talk about these places in a way that makes sense so that it can have that designation in place? How do they share? And that all ties back to traditional ecological knowledge because those stories, right, associated with why these places are important are passed on generation to generation. Those understandings are passed on generation to generation. I know Jim Enote has done a big project related to Zuni and cultural mapping so that we have a better understanding of how traditional ecological knowledge overlaps with political boundaries that exist on you know, maps that are currently drawn and tying into place and so forth so that we have a more comprehensive and holistic understanding of the world around us. I'm curious what got you started with this work. Probably for a lot of people, confusion is probably part of my path, being multi-ethnic, you know, having a a white dad and a Native and African-American mom. There was a lot of confusion in my childhood being brought up because there were a lot of differing value systems in my home. And I was raised in an urban environment, removed from the reservation. And so um, my eldest aunt, my mom's oldest sister, was very interested in how to heal and how to be well and what that looks like, not from a Western science perspective, but from a cultural perspective. And my aunt specifically said to me, nobody needs you to save anyone. All of the knowledge um, and information that the communities need, they have there. What you might be able to bring in is some, some resources that help to uplift that and help to create more of a, a solid 
foundation and platform. And so also recognizing my identity privilege, right? I'm light complected. And so that gives me an opportunity to speak in ways that would be higher risk for other people who have the ancestral ties that I have. And recognizing that not only as a a privilege that has allowed me to access a lot of the things that I have, but also as a responsibility because I do run lower risk and not seeing myself as in a position to tell other people's stories, but seeing myself as having the privilege of being in a position to help facilitate dialogue. And that's something that I can do and something that I can do well and something that I should hold myself accountable to. So that's kind of steered my professional path. And what do you enjoy about the work that you do? People and places. Uh, it's, I guess it's a generic response, um, but ultimately I have the fortune of engaging and interacting with so many different people who have so many different stories to tell and listening to those stories and learning from those stories. But ultimately, I think the thing that I enjoy most is listening to people's stories and getting to be in some amazing places. Well, Daisy, thank you so much for this interview. Uh, well, thank you, Christina, for having the opportunity to share. To listen to this interview with Daisy Purdy again, or hear any of our past shows, visit sciencemoab.org, kzmu.org, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU.